Hello and welcome to Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series was developed as a part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guest is Matt Hullum, who's the CEO and one of the founders of Rooster Teeth, an Austin, Texas-based production company, which has created a number of successful online video series. One of these series is Red vs. Blue, a long-running comedy based on the Microsoft game Halo. The company has also expanded its offerings to include merchandise, an anime series, and is producing a crowdfunded feature comedy called Laser Team. Hullum described his career path, which took him from Texas to Hollywood and then back to Texas again to enter the emerging field of web video. He talks about the opportunities and challenges of being based in Austin and how new creative and production companies like his work to cultivate communities in a fast-changing world of online media. He spoke on November 16, 2015, on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Greetings all, once again, welcome to our next installment of Media Industry Conversations. I'm Elisa Perrin, and I'm here to welcome Mr. Matt Hollum, uh, who we're thrilled to have here today as one of our prominent alums from RTF. Uh, Woohoo, indeed. Uh, see, you can be him. <laughs> um, and so today we're going to focus on how he got to his position as CEO of Rooster Teeth and talk about the many, many, many different things you seem to have done and been doing. Um, before I give a little intro about his background, let me just thank my collaborator with this course, Cindy McCreary, uh, as well as RTAs, Kyle Rather and Tim Piper. And I'd also like to thank the RTF department and the Moody College of Communication for supporting this class. Uh, we don't have flashing up the rest of the speakers. We have two guest speakers left, so you can check out the RTF website if you're curious to see them. So just a little bit of background on Matt. Uh, as I mentioned, he's a graduate of RTF, and from his time uh, graduating from here, he went on to work first in visual effects, I believe, and mm -hmm. we'll kind of walk through some of that. And then uh, subsequently being involved with Rooster Teeth in a variety of capacities, directing, voice acting. Janitorial work. Janitorial work. All of the above. We'll, we'll have to hear more about it. And so, and Rooster Teeth is quite a prominent uh, multi-channel network, is that what you call yourselves? Uh, that's also part of a larger entity these days, right? It is. Uh, and so today we're going to focus on his career trajectory since he, RTF, his roles and responsibilities at Rooster Teeth, and his views on developing content both old and new, for old and new platforms we should say, and advice for all of you looking to work in the media industry. So with that said, we have a lot to cover. Please join me in welcoming Matt Hullum. Thank you for having me. <laughs> nice to be here. Yeah, so I guess this is a little different than the usual fan convention environment. I, you know, I brought uh, giveaways because <laughs> whenever I go and speak, uh, people always expect me to give them something during it. So I will give you things because I brought some things to give you uh, and, and some other stuff to show you. But uh, I wanted to make sure that we did all the educational stuff, too. Yeah, the educational stuff is very important. Yeah. <laughs> As you know from graduating from RTF. I do. <laughs> okay, well, maybe you can just tell us, uh, how did you prepare 
for Career in Media. What did you do while you were at UT? What were kind of the first steps you took? Um, gosh, well, that's broad. I don't know. I did a lot of stuff when I was here. Um, I probably spent most of my time actually at TSTV. Is that what's still around, right? You guys are in TSTV, a few of you? Um, when, when I was there, it was in the basement of Hog, and it was filled with bats. Uh, there's another uh, filmmaker you guys might know named uh, David Zellner. Uh, he made a movie called Kamiko with his brother Nathan, and we've been all been really good friends for years, and all were there at the same time. And uh, David used to occasionally get chased out of uh, TSTV screaming while a bat was on his head. <laughs> the University of Texas educational experience right there. Okay. Uh, so uh, hook him. Uh, uh, so it, uh, that was actually a great experience because. Um, one of the things I thought was great about Texas that was like uh, daunting but also liberating is that it's such an enormous school and there's so many possibilities for different things you can do but I think it also you have a lot of autonomy and if you want to kind of go out and you know just try different things there's a lot of great organizations here for you guys to be able to do that and TSTD was the one for me where I felt like I sunk in. I'd done the Daily Texan uh, for a little while before that and enjoyed that too but um, I really loved it at TSTV. You could just grab equipment that I think people didn't even know was there in those days. Like there was an old film camera there, uh, and that's how I learned to shoot on film. Just grabbed that film camera and went off in uh, my spare time with friends and just kind of taught myself that way. Uh, but uh, I think probably the experience uh, now is a lot different because when I was there, there was, there, when I was here, there was no digital, you know, so everything was film. And, um, you know, the processes were, I think, a lot more expensive and a little bit slower. And um, I don't know. I was, wish I was actually going to school now. Like, <laughs> you, you guys, where there's, I mean, you can edit stuff on your phone, which is pretty insane. And I think uh, anything shot on an iPhone now probably looks better than the first couple films I made. So I read that you made your first feature while you were still here. Yeah, we did. So um, I, I started Rooster Teeth with a friend, Bernie. He was a computer science student, mm -hmm. and um, he, the way he tells our like, story of meeting and coming together is that he was a computer science student who wanted to learn about making film, <laughs> but I was an RTF student, and I actually wanted to learn about computers, and we ended up meeting, and we made this 16-millimeter uh, uh, film, uh, the feature, and um, had a great time doing it, and that's like, you know, maxed out all of our credit cards to do it, uh, all of our, like, one credit card each to do it. <laughs> And, um, and we had, uh, a, there was a book uh, that Robert Rodriguez had, had made a, a, a few years earlier about his experience making El Mariachi, if you guys know that movie. So that's the one where he made it for seven grand. And he talked about all the things that he did to make that movie. And one of them was things like, I bought uh, photography lights at the university co-op because it was the cheapest lights I could find that were also the right color spectrum for film. And I was like, I know where the co-op is. I'm going to go buy those lights right now. Uh, so we like we modeled a lot of our production techniques after what was in that book. So it was an instruction manual. It really was. <laughs> it was a good instruction manual. So this was this around the mid-90s, late 90s? Uh, it was like 96, 97, okay. yeah. Okay. Uh, so you graduated, and you went out to L.A., right? Yes. Well, I graduated, and then I actually started working for, for Robert. Oh, okay. On a movie that was that started here, and then it moved to L.A. Okay. And so when it moved to L.A., I moved to L.A., and then I just stayed out there. Yeah. So uh, was it the project that 
it led you out there? Did you want to stay out there for a while? Or what sort of how did you get to L.A. and then how did you get back? <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't know when I went out there if I wanted to stay or what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I didn't, like, give up my apartment here or anything. I actually had another friend who lived in L.A. And he had a, a really cool place on Venice Beach. And uh, and so we agreed to – he wanted to come back to Austin. Mm-hmm. And so we agreed to swap apartments. But I had a roommate, and I just forgot to tell him that I was doing this. So one day, he had a real, this guy, his, his name is Vic, and he had a really fu- funny Louisiana uh, accent. He talked like this, dude. Hey, how's it going? do do And uh, he would say that. And then so the, Vic just showed up at my old apartment saying, I'm your new roommate. Hello, dude. Let's, let's hang out. <laughs> and I was in Venice, California. But that was great. And then I, so I was at uh, the Sony lot, and um, so I got to work on a big – movie lot for the first time, which was um, really cool, but it wasn't quite as big as the University of Texas campus, so I, I felt okay <laughs> when I got there um, and saw lots of crazy things at that place, and um, after that, felt like, oh, I kind of got the hang of this L.A. thing. I can hang out here and make a few more movies. So what were you doing while you were out in L.A.? Was it mostly effects? or? Yeah, so I started in, in visual effects and um, kind of found I've always like really felt like I was more of an artist but found my way into um, kind of like management and producing because the, honestly there's just a lot of fewer people who want to do that because it's the boring side of the job and still to this day that's always you know the thing I mean you know there's the joke about what I really want to do is direct you know but that's what everybody wants to do like nobody wants to do the producing job which is a really important job uh, and really uh, demanding and I think uh, rewarding job but people always want to do uh, the creative stuff, which is also good, but um, there has to, there has to be both. So I ended up doing management and producing, and I had been uh, after that movie. I did a uh, I did this really terrible Sylvester Stallone movie um, that took forever, and then a bunch. Of, I worked on a bunch of other movies that like started and then went away. Like this happens all the time in L.A. that you don't like hear about. There's like there's movies that start just all just every single day. There's a new movie that's being made. And then after a month, it goes away. And it's not being worked on anymore. Or a lot of movies that, like, I worked on them, and then, you know, it went away. And then 10 years later, it came out. Like, the movie, what's the Nicolas Cage movie where his head's on fire? Ghost Rider. Rider. Thank you. So (laughs) I worked on that movie for, like, a month. And it was called Nicolas Cage with his head on fire, when I think when I worked on it. Uh, But, like, at the time, they, like, I was paid to do an analysis of the script and um, how it could be made. And at the time, there was, like, the like digital fire, CG fire wasn't a thing. Nobody had to do that. So it was basically every time I read, his head's on fire, it was like, well, that's a million dollars. And I just, like, would add up a million dollars until I got done. And then, so that movie didn't get made. And then, like, ten years later, it was it came out in theaters. And, like, that kind of thing happens all the time. So it's, it's um, I don't know, it's, it's funny, like, being there. Like, you work on all these things and... Uh, um, but don't really have an attachment to them. So how did you learn the sort of management producing side? Was it self-educated? Did you read up certain things? Uh, some of it was. One of my favorite classes at UT was a, a producing class. Um, I'm struggling to remember the professor's Richard name. Lewis? Yes. Is he still here? He's still here. That was a really good class. Um, th- that was, I felt like, the meatiest, uh, one of the meatiest classes I had in terms of, like, real uh specific like real world specifics um 
So I, I got kind of a, just a general interest mm -hmm. in that side of it um, from that class. And then certainly, like, you know, like making your own stuff, like an independent level, like you have to do, like wear every hat, basically, and right. you have to do producing. So, uh, and I'm sure everybody in this room has done that to a certain degree with your, your, your projects. It really is, is no different. It's just, you know, it, you just add more layers of complexity and, and uh, more money and mm -hmm. more people wanting the money. So what brought you back to Austin? How did that happen? Well, what brought me back to Austin, I have a little video. Maybe it was a good time to show the little video. Um, what brought me back to Austin was uh, Bernie, um, uh, my uh, partner made a, uh, a, this little video for this thing that we still do today called Red Versus Blue. And it is, um, if you haven't seen it, it's a, it's a, it's a comedy uh, sci-fi series that's uh, based on the video game Halo. And we partner with Microsoft now to do that. But at the time, um, Bernie just made this little one-off video just for fun. And we had been keeping up long distance and writing and like trying to figure out how we were going to make something happen in um, in Hollywood or, you know, the traditional media world. We had gone through this thing with our own movie where um, that, that we made right out of college where there was like a lot of gatekeepers and we were very frustrated in the whole film festival process and we did a bunch of festivals, but every single one was agonizing and then you deal with a lot of like kind of douchebags like in far as like distributors and things like that. We almost got it turned into a TV show at USA. Then everybody who worked at USA got fired I think it wasn't because of our movie, but it might have been. Uh, so that went away, and it was just like one thing after another of like, the traditional media world is really hard. Uh, and then Bernie put this video up online, and um, uh, well, I actually put an earlier video up. I should tell this, this part of the story. Uh, I, was, I was producing visual effects for a small company, um, although there's a company called Metrolite, and they had a really actually had a rich history. Do you guys remember the Total Recall? The one, the first one was Arnold Schwarzenegger, and all those like really like weird effects that they had in that movie. So this company did all of those, and it was kind of like their claim to fame. And um, by the time I went and worked for them, it was like it was a pretty small shop, and it was like a, a little bit out of date. Like all their technology was still from that movie; <laughs> they hadn't updated it in years. Uh, but I was working there and and managing the crew there, and there was like one guy that I always had to check up on, who was. Uh, like slacking off basically but I would go in his his cubicle and even though I was like telling him to get back to work I actually enjoyed that process because he was one of these guys that was on online first and we saw see all the hey sweetie uh would see all the cool stuff online uh before anybody else you know back then it was like there was no reddit or or facebook or whatever it was just like usenet groups and like weird kind of Stuff. There was nothing, there was like Homestar Runner was the only thing. You guys ever seen Homestar Runner? Like that was the only thing that you could watch online pretty much and maybe Newgrounds. And so this guy was always finding cool stuff. Uh, and, and so I would kind of like, you know, use him to like uh, feel like I knew what I was talking about and like, you know, saw cool things come out online. And then one day I walk in his cubicle. I'm in L.A., right? And, uh, and Bernie uh, and my, my other friends from Rooster Teeth are in Austin. It was before Rooster Teeth, but I'm in LA and they're in Austin, and I and I walk in this guy's cubicle, and uh, he's watching uh, a video that has uh, our mutual friend Gus, and it and it's a, it was a parody of those Apple Switch commercials, the ones where they're like, I wanted to be, you know, to do Photoshop, so I I switched to Mac, right? 
And this one, they made a parody. Was I want to be a gamer, so I switched to Mac. And then he realizes there's no games <laughs> on Mac. So it was very funny. But I was watching. I was like, it's like that's Gus. And I know this like this pattern of writing and this dialogue that must have been written by Bernie. This is really weird. How did you see this? And he was like the guy I was talking. He was like, I don't know. We were, what are we talking about, man? And uh, so I went to the phone and I called Bernie and I said, um, Hey, I just saw this video with Gus. It seems like you must have had something to do with it. Um, did you put that out? And he's like, yeah, I did, but we just uploaded that like 12 hours ago. How did you already see it? You know, you're literally half the country away. How did it get to you so fast? I was like, I don't know, but we should start a business out of this. <laughs> so that was like probably six years before YouTube or anything like that, but it really clicked for both of us at that moment that uh, kind of like the world was getting flat, you know, and that the uh, technology had reached the point where, like, we could distribute stuff online, and people would actually see it. And they'd find it organically, you know, if it were good, if it was good. And um, and then, short time after, we made a really uh, dumb video. Can I play the dumb video? Yeah, sure. Okay. Please do. In the year 2552, in the last year of the covenant invasion of the outer planets. A hero arose, a cyborg known only by the name Master Chief. He led the covenant to the edge of space, to a ring wall called Halo. It was on Halo that Master Chief learned the grand plan of the covenant armada to destroy humanity and its homeworld, Earth. Using the defenses of Halo, he destroyed the ring and the Covenant Armada along with him. The invasion was over. Unknown to the people of Earth, the Covenant were planning to return. But in the time between the first and second Covenant invasion, there was a brief but violent period of civil war between humans. Man fighting man. Red versus blue. This is the story of the, what is that? What are you doing? Paraphrase, well don't paraphrase, don't. Look, I read what's in the script and you type whatever I say, okay? So just type whatever I say. No, don't type everything I say. Just type what, it's in the damn. That's not funny. All right, now that, okay, that's got, that, take that off because that is, for number one, that's offensive and secondly, I am not a cockbite. I, I am not a cockbite. That is rude. Just put up the fucking logo, okay? Just put up the logo. Assholes. Huh. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think somebody owes me the last two minutes of my life back. Cool. So that was like the first Red vs. Blue video ever. We made that and put that up, and then um, um, people seem to like that one. So then we made some more, like actual episodes. If you guys have seen the show, it's you know, it's mostly like the very end of that where the characters are talking to each other, um, and it's all it was done using a, a process that we didn't know the name of, but we since learned it's called machinima, which is basically the art and science of using video games to do all your animation for you. 
Um, so it was, a, it was a really cheap and efficient way to make it. Uh, and we, Bernie and I had all this um, leftover production equipment from our days having made the movie. And we're able to use all that uh, to do it. Uh, it was not shot on 16 millimeter film. <laughs> so this was around 2002, 2003. It was 2002, yeah. Okay, and was it just the two of you doing this, or? Uh, so we started. It was uh, Bernie and uh, two friends of his from work, uh, who are still with Rooster Teeth today, um, uh, Gus Arola and Jeff Ramsey, and in and then I was in LA still, and so uh, on. In L.A., I had, like, a group of friends, and so we would do recordings in L.A. and ship them back to Austin, and then occasionally he would send me stuff to edit in Austin, and we would go back and forth, or in L.A. Um, so it was kind of like a bi-coastal production for a while. Uh, it was pretty fun. And then as soon as, like, it took off, like, in a really big way, um, uh, we moved back, you know, to Austin. So this is pre-YouTube. How are you circulating this? Yeah, it was weird in, the, in you know, in... In those old days, um, <laughs> the uh, because the biggest hurdle we had was actually serving the files to people because you know now it's just like bang you upload it you forget about it you're not thinking about the process but back then like every single step of it was you know a huge technical daunting task we had a website and the website was mostly devoted to explaining to people how to watch videos online <laughs> it was like you download it and then okay now you've downloaded it look in your downloads for you don't have a download for look on your desktop do, you don't have quicktime installed you have to install quicktime okay then you open it you can't hear any sound okay check your sound you know i mean really that was like the whole thing just so somebody could watch that for two minutes you know um uh and one of the early problems we had was um it was too expensive to serve them because we were paying for all the hosting fees and uh, we would put this stuff up and, uh, you know, like even like a little two-minute video like that, if a million people download it, suddenly we get a bill for $15,000. And uh, I was still paying off the movie on my credit card at that point. So um, so we had, to, we had to find a way to, to, to monetize the show. And uh, we started selling T-shirts, started selling DVDs. Um, we partnered with Microsoft and we actually ended up doing – um, well, not just obviously, you know, Red versus Blue in the whole show, but uh, doing a bunch of commercials for them. So um, it worked out okay in the long run. Yeah, it seems to have. Uh, so did you, I know that you've directed commercials and music videos and so many different types of projects. Like, how did that fit into starting up Rooster Teeth? Like, how did this all evolve? Um, well, I've been, like, directing some music videos in my spare time in L.A. When, before we started up um, Red versus Rooster Teeth and Red versus Blue, and uh, I don't know. I think you know, Bernie and I had always had like, ambitions to get back to doing something bigger, mm-hmm. and um, but like Red versus Blue was just so successful for us that it kind of put everything else on hold because we were done, we were honestly just trying to keep up with uh, the demand for it and and how quickly the audience and the community around it was growing. Um, so there was a lot. There were a lot of projects that we're only just now are are getting to actually do. Um, and the, I think that the time that I realized it was like truly going to be a really big thing is when we had finished season one of Red versus Blue. We got invited to screen it at the Lincoln Center in New York, and um, I you know never been to the Lincoln Center. I thought this seems like way too prestigious for us. 
and then showed up. And the, the night before, there was still like the all the signage up. The night before, they had screened Lord of the Rings with the entire cast in attendance. <laughs> I was like, we're in the wrong place. <laughs> but we had this screening, and we were thinking like, it was like a four or 500-seat theater, and we thought, we're not going to fill it up, but whatever, it's fine. And, um, you know, there'll be a few New Yorkers that have heard of us that come out. And that'll be nice. We'll get to meet a few people. And, you know, I hear they have good pizza in that town. So, <laughs> uh, so that's what we were looking forward to. And then every we, and then we, we did fill up the theater. And it was people from literally all around the world. We had, like, people from, like, Singapore and Ireland and Australia. And, I mean, like, literally everywhere. And I was like, oh, well, the thing that's fascinating about this is not just that Maybe we can't have a you know a business and actually do this, but that um, you know it really it really very much felt like a community, and I think that was for me like the first time where community had be, been redefined, where uh, community had no relationship whatsoever to a geographic location. Mm-hmm. You know, community is like I think that was one of the big breakthroughs of the internet. Community became really much more about um, interests, common interests. You know, but that was the first time we had seen it in a tangible way in real life. Yeah, so how are you trying to cultivate a community or uh, engage with people prior to that and then subsequently as well? Well, prior to that, it was mostly just, you know, online. It was, you know, we had a PHPBB forum, you know, that was where most of the activity for our community took place. And um, we would just be in there, you know, chatting with everybody, Mm -hmm. um, just the same as as anybody else. And then... um, we realized, I think, kind of like around that same time that we really needed to develop something bigger and more robust, and we made a kind of like our own social media website with like profiles and everything. It actually came out like three months before Facebook. But we, some reason, we didn't get to a billion viewers, a billion <laughs> customers. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, we, we focused on, on that and just like having a place where our community could get together. And then we all over the years, we've also always done a lot of live events and uh, conventions and things where I give out freebies to people. Aha. Gotcha. So, so what, how often were you releasing Red versus Blue? Did you have a regular schedule, or how'd that mm-hmm. work? We did. Um, we felt like uh, a regular schedule was very important because, you know, uh, at that time, there was no precedent for how you would uh, deliver things online, and people were very much accustomed to regular schedules of of TV mm-hmm. uh, and those kind of viewing habits, so we did have a regular time. Uh, we had we had kind of like a couple different levels of viewership. We had um, what we still call a sponsor level, which is basically a paying subscriber, and um, they would get the videos on fr- uh, Friday, and then uh, the rest of the general public would get it on uh, Sunday, and it was always at the exact same time, and we were very tried to be very consistent. And uh, when we were late which happened more often than I care to admit, um, they, boy, they would beat us up about it, you know? So it forced us to, to really kind of, like, knuckle down and, and be serious about it and, um, and commit, to, commit to serious deadlines. So when did you guys start to move beyond just red versus blue and do a bunch of other stuff? Um, it was fairly soon. It was, it was probably, like, during the second season of red versus blue well actually at first we were always doing other stuff but uh we got really caught up at first because we had so many commercial requests mm-hmm. and um like i think video game developers and publishers saw that we were 
like doing something completely different with games and injecting a lot of humor into it and just looking at them from a different point of view. So we we ended up doing tons of commercials. We did um, all the commercials for GameStop for, I don't know, like six years or seven years. Wow. And um, uh, got to meet and work with a ton of game developers and publishers through that experience. We did all the commercials for EA, um, like all the sports ones, Madden and NCAA and whatever for, I don't know, three or four years. Um, and ultimately, like, I, I think, like, that was all, those were good experiences. We learned a lot, met a lot of um, uh, contacts that have been uh, really beneficial to us over the years. But I do wish in many ways that we had focused more on our own content earlier on. We just, you know, the, the market and the industry was just so uh, young, you know, nobody, I think, really knew what it could support. Mm-hmm. But we usually had at least one other thing going on that was some kind of series. We did um, a series with the game The Sims after we got to be uh, friends with, with the people at EA. And they asked, you know, we just worked on a partnership with that, and that worked out pretty well. We did another um, series on a, a kind of smaller game that was I thought was a really funny series. The game was called Fear, and we made this game uh, or show called Panics around it. Um, and the fear was an acronym. I can't remember what it was, so we made Panics an acronym. And the acronym for Panics was people acting normal in crazy-ass situations. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. And was all of this pretty much in Austin, or have you had a hub in L.A. during this time? Uh, it was pretty much all in Austin. Uh, we actually we started in Buda, <laughs> to be specific. We had uh, Bernie's spared bedroom in his house at first, and then we had... Uh, a little one-bedroom apartment, like I think it was literally on top of the train tracks, because it was so unbelievably loud. Every time the train would come in, we'd have to stop recording for like 15 minutes. Uh, and then we moved to downtown Austin from there, and then we moved to South Austin from there, and now we're at Austin Studios. Great. So how how big is Rooster Teeth now? I know that you have so many different yeah things going on. Maybe you can talk about. A little bit about what you guys focus on yeah. and the various activities. Well, we went from making two to three minutes a week. Uh, now we make about 40 hours of content a week. Um, it's pretty much just like a TV network, uh, just online. Uh, the amount of stuff we do. We have about 135 employees. Um, we kind of separate our uh, content into a few different areas. We have a lot of uh, uh, gameplay-related content. If you guys are familiar with like Let's Plays and and that kind of stuff, we do a lot of that. Um, we do a lot of uh, what we call broadcast. It's more like talk show format things, uh, podcasts and game shows and those types of things. We do a lot of animation. Um, Red vs. Blue is not our biggest animated show anymore. Um, our biggest show is called Ruby, and it's an anime series. Um, and it's just uh, Warner Brothers is now distributing it in Japan making it the first American-made anime to ever be distributed in Japan, which we're pretty uh, stoked about. And um, then we do a ton of live-action stuff. So um, everything from super short form, um, you know, like Vines or whatever, to kind of more like sketch comedy things have kind of been bread and butter for us for a long time. Uh, And then we have a feature uh, called Laser Team, and it's coming out January 27th. Mark your calendars. (laughs) Are you, who's distributing that or how is that working? Uh, we're distributing it with a company called Amplify. Mm-hmm. 
and um, it's going to be uh, basically it'll be in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and U.K. Uh, theatrically simultaneously. And then if I can work out the rest of Europe, I'd love to. But man, that's a tough nut to crack for an indie movie. And so uh, you're self-distributing with their partnership. Yeah. Okay. So we uh, so we signed a big deal with YouTube Red. You guys know YouTube Red? Um, uh, and so we'll be on that platform. We're the first uh, movie to be on that platform. Mm -hmm. And um, then we're doing the theatrical, and we'll have a bunch of other stuff wow. for that coming out soon. Yeah. Cool. So as far as the, the people at your company, is it mostly production type work they're doing or what are the other kinds of things that people are doing there? Yeah, it's probably like 80% probably like production. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we know we have all the, you know, stuff you guys don't want to do like accounting and finance. <laughs> um, we actually have a great accounting and finance team. Um, they're really cool. Uh, uh, but, you know, that stuff we do, you know, uh, we have a nice... A good size ad sales department. Um, we have uh, a really great merchandise uh, and design team. Um, I, I, our biggest, uh, you know, area of the business is still, um, you know, our own merchandise and um, our own kind of like self-created uh, goods. You know, so we we make tons of stuff: um, uh, t-shirts, DVDs. Hoodies, blankets, pajamas, whatever, you know, like lots of stuff. And um, it's all, all sold on our white website and a few other places. And that, most of that's managed in-house? It's all managed in-house, oh, wow. yeah. Oh, okay. 100%. Okay. So as far as you personally, how how do you divide up or what do you do these days? Uh, you're, it sounds like you have so many things going on. <laughs> um, yeah, we do have a lot of things going on. Um, well, I, I have to, you know, kind of like dabble in all of that, you know, mostly I just wait for somebody to come in screaming that something's broken or on fire, um, and then I try to put it out as best as I can. Um, you know, I think the, the where we are now is great. It's a lot different than where we were like two or three years ago, um, where uh, right we have now so many great managers on the team. The we were talking the other day, like our animation team is. Gosh, it's a lot of people now. It's like, it's probably like 50 people just in animation. Wow. And it might be 100 people next year. When I was at, I was at Warner Brothers for a while, and I managed the feature animation department at Warner Brothers, and we never had more than 75 artists. So to think that we were in Austin might have 100 animators, you know, is pretty nuts. So the animators that you hire, do they do you train them or where do they get their skills? Like for our students that are looking to figure out, you know, yeah. what they um, need to do. Well, I mean, most of them have traditional, um, you know, animation schooling. And um, a lot of them have done, you know, internships or worked at other uh, studios before they come to us. Mm -hmm. But we do have some people that are completely uh, self-taught. And um, I think that's great. You know, I think, you know, you can really go about it either way. I know that there's a lot of, there's some people that we have over there who started out in one field uh, in, uh, in entertainment or production, um, but always dabbled in, in animation. And then once uh, they got into Rooster Teeth, we have had quite a few people actually started in live action, mm -hmm. but then got so swept up with uh, enjoying the animation process, they ended up migrating over to animation. 
Um, so we try to bring everything, everybody in and, and kind of like help them learn the ropes. And um, it's a really tight-knit group. We do a lot of motion capture, mm -hmm. which is, you guys know what motion capture is? Like you wear the suit with the balls on it and, you know, <laughs> that's, that sounded dirtier than, <laughs> than it is. But uh, we do a lot of that, and it, we have that like right between where all the animators sit. So anybody can kind of just jump up and iterate on what they're doing really quickly, which is a nice thing. And everybody, I think, um, enjoys kind of like working on each other's stuff and helping. And we have some people who kind of specialize in different things. We have some people who specialize in doing action sequences and some people who specialize in doing facial animation. And it just kind of um, as it goes across the board. I would say uh, one thing I think is really helpful in terms of thinking about career path that in hindsight helped me early on mm -hmm. and I and I definitely look for now as an employer is having a specialty mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of uh, people who come in to uh, apply to work at Rooster Teeth who say oh, I'm a jack of all trades or I learn quickly or or whatever and for you know at a certain level like that's all great but um, once you get into uh, a bigger organization um, it, you really need people who know exactly what they're doing. And so people tend to focus uh, on live action or specific types of live action with, with you, your company, as well as the animators focus on their specific roles as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we have, you know, um, I mean, we have a lot of pretty specialized um, job duties now, like at literally, actually, like really within each department. Yeah. You know. So how, how much of your work is creative these days versus yeah. managerial or business-oriented? Um, you know, on good days, it's 50-50. Um, when I, you know, uh, it just, it really just depends because, and, and also I don't, I don't ever feel like um, anything that we do doesn't have some kind of like, there's some kind of creative import to even like, you know, just making up a spreadsheet so I can figure out how to finance something, mm -hmm. you know? Because a lot of times you're going, that was one thing I, I actually, I think, took away from that uh, producing class we were talking about. Because when you're going through, I mean, one of the first things you do, you know, if you're producing something, you've got to go through your script and kind of like break it down for every single element. Um, so you know how much every single thing's going to cost and what it's all going to tally up to. But, you know, in doing that, that's really a creative process, you know. You're kind of like putting yourself in the role of the director or the AD and trying to envision like, like wh what, what, what does this project need? What are we going to have in it? Um, so it does take a lot of, uh, I think, creative thought mm -hmm. to, to do the producing side of things as well. Um, so, you know, uh, for me, it's, it's kind of like I, I have to touch on all those things. Um, and I like the fact that I, I had kind of like the experience of coming in Wanting to do creative stuff, but having the experience of, of, you know, getting really a solid background in producing. Yeah. So how does YouTube fit in all of this? Like, I'm curious in what ways you engage with YouTube yeah. or well, how we, your relationships change. Yeah. Well, we thought they were knuckleheads at first, <laughs> for sure. I mean, when they, I mean, when they started, you know, I mean, they were just stealing videos right and left, you know, like the pre-Google days. And, um, you know, their big thing... I think put them on the map was the Janet Jackson, you know, nipple wardrobe malfunction and um, John Stewart yelling at people, right? And it's like, both of those clips were stolen. I mean, they didn't, you know, like NBC or uh, CNN, whoever, you know, 
owned that media. And when in the really old days, before we committed to going on that platform, they had the, they had this thing where you couldn't email them. Like if you, somebody had uploaded your work or your video, you couldn't you couldn't just email them or call them and say, hey, you know, uh, can you take this video down? Uh, you had to fax them. <laughs> and so you would write down the URL and fax it to them, and you knew on the other side there was a fax machine that went straight into a trash can. <laughs> um, but I'd say after, like, you know, uh, the DMCA and Google came in, they totally cleaned their act up. They're totally above board, of course. I mean, yeah. like I need to tell you guys that. Um, and we, it was around, was it like, re like, really early, I think, in the Google days that they contacted us and asked us would you you know would you make an official channel when you join and um we were we were lucky because we hadn't thought to reserve uh the name rooster teeth we thought they that we would always just be competitors with them and wouldn't want anything to do with it at first but the guy who is now our creative director his name's gavin free um you guys know gavin yeah he does a he's a really popular channel called the slow-mo guys and um, uh, he actually, that, that screening I was talking about earlier, the, the one in New York at the Lincoln mm -hmm. Center, that's where we first met him. He was 15 years old huh. and got his parents' permissions home out to fly out from the UK to come meet nice. us. Yeah, his, I don't know, his parents are crazy. <laughs> um, but that was where we first met him. He's been with us all these years. And um, thankfully, he had the forethought to grab YouTube.com slash Rooster Teeth in the early days, just as like he thought we might want it at some point, oh, and nice. so it came in handy. <laughs> so, how how much are you dependent on YouTube, or think of YouTube as part of like central to your business versus yeah. other things? Um, I mean, they've been a fantastic partner for for us for the last, gosh, I don't know, six years, I think, mm -hmm. um, where we've really been doing a lot of work with them. Um, so, you know, I. I I don't know. I mean, at the at the moment, I think it's you know it's a fantastic platform. We we really enjoy it. We're you know we're always I, I think more focused on our own platforms mm -hmm. and um, making sure those are the really home base for our audience and um, <coughs> serves our content as as well as possibly can. Because working with any th third party and um, you know you're not going to be in control of everything. And that's another reason why we wanted to do, um, you know, kind of an unconventional direct distribution model with, with Laser Team, with our movie. Is I don't know, we're just, I guess, a bit controlling. And we just <laughs> want to, like, do things our own way. Um, but it comes up, you know, we, like, we, we had a, a partnership with this company called uh, Blip for a long time that uh, served videos. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they went out of business, you know. Uh, so yeah, I think you have to be like self-reliant and make sure that you have all the tools that you need in your arsenal. And um, if you're relying on a third party for everything, it's not really the case because you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. But um, YouTube's been a great partner, and um, we're excited about the the Laser Team YouTube Red release. Yeah, and that's January. January twenty seventh, March. <laughs> so, how much? How different do you feel it is to develop content for? Digital platforms online versus it seems like a lot of what you talk about in terms yeah. of web series is sort of built off the TV model and you're aiming yep. for a theatrical release. Like, how do you make those distinctions or do you? 
Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's it's uh, it's actually more and less similar somehow to traditional media now than it ever has been. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is like when when we first started, it was a very clear line between online content and traditional media content where it's like you could not make a video and put it up that was longer than two minutes and expect anybody to watch it, you know? If you did, it was just like, for one, nobody could download it, and for two, nobody had the attention span to watch it because almost everybody's like watching stuff while they're doing, you know, other things on their computer or honestly they're at work or at school or whatever. And, um, and so they just, you could not make long-form stuff online. It just would not have worked. Uh, and, and now I think everybody... Uh, just takes online content for granted that it would just be, um, you know, as robust as anything else. I mean, like, I don't think there's any distinction in most people's minds between Netflix and, you know, HBO or NBC or AMC or whatever. It's just the box or the screen that, mm -hmm. it, that it comes through. Um, so now you can do, like, anything. What's, the thing that's, I think, a little funny is, like, so much of it is getting formatized. Is that a word? Yes, I made it up. We've made it a word. Um, so it's like, you know, like people always made, you know, five, six, seven second videos that mm -hmm. were funny. Mm -hmm. Now they're now they're called vines, right? Okay. I mean, like or now it's like an Instagram video, whatever. There's like, you know, I think you see more like companies as the online space is maturing, kind of swooping in and trying to find like what's our little niche that we're gonna grab and turn this into the thing and, and own that. And um, I don't know if that will will persist or if that'll change. I thought one of the most interesting things I've read about the industry lately is that um, you know HBO signed uh, Jon Stewart to do content for HBO. Did you guys read about that? But the thing that's really interesting I thought was like they signed him to do short form content. Yeah. For their uh, HBO Now HBO and HBO now. Go. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Um, so, so it's like coming, coming full circle. So where do you see Rooster Teeth kind of fitting in this new evolving landscape how you know what is your vision for the company or i mean obviously just dominating all those other players <laughs> first and foremost um you know reed hastings called me all the time and asked me not to beat him up <laughs> um somebody knew who reed hastings was that's great um yeah so i you know i think we just we we've always tried to make stuff that we uh believe in and that we personally want to watch and enjoy making mm -hmm. And and have said like we hope that, and we think that this will find an audience. Um, so we we honestly we just make content for ourselves, which is really different, I think, than um, the starting point of uh, a Netflix, for instance, which is so algorithm driven, <laughs> where they're basically, I mean, it's really effective, but they're just trying to make content that will check boxes on a specific spreadsheet of demographic. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, interests, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and that's just not what we want to do. I mean, we, everybody has all that data and all that technology, and you certainly use it to um, understand your audience mm -hmm. and try to, you know, uh, divine some kind of wisdom from what their their tastes are and what they're, what, what they're liking and not or what they're not responding to. But at the same time, it's like I, nobody, I don't think, wants to show up and go to work where it's like, you know, fill this programming slot, you know. That's, that's not why people get into making cool stuff, and we just want to keep making cool stuff. So who do you see as your audience? Or I mean, you probably have a pretty good sense of who your audience is from the various ways you engage with fans. Yeah. Um, 
people who like cool stuff. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, I mean, if it's, I mean, if you're just looking at it from a very just like dry kind of, you know, demographic basis, you know, it's it's mainly like 15 to you know 30 something year olds. Mm-hmm. Um, we skew more male than female, um, but that also varies really greatly between all of our shows. Like a show like Ruby uh, is more female skewing and and younger. Mm-hmm. And a show like the Rooster Teeth podcast uh, is older and probably slightly more, a lot more male, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, I don't know. We're not trying to, like, uh, hit any particular group, but I think that we have benefited from um, kind of people who are uh, first adopters and things that people that like things that are new and fresh, and uh, that tends to be younger people, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, do you are there certain parts of the world that you find there there's more excuse me more appeal for your um, programming? Well, there's always the language barrier thing. So our biggest like our biggest audience per capita is Australia. Interesting. Which, yeah, <laughs> um, like Australians are just like they really like dick jokes. I guess. <laughs> We have a lot of that kind of content. Um, but they've been amazing to us over the years. But, I mean, for the most part, the English-speaking countries, you know, uh, have been really good to us, and we have really strong base, strong fan bases. I think, actually, st- uh, per capita, stronger in Canada, U.K., and Australia than, than the U.S. Um, and then the uh, kind of like, you know, the, the northern European countries, too. We've always done well in Interesting. Yeah. So the people that work for you, are they mainly coming from Austin or Texas, or are they coming from all over? Oh, all over now. Um, yeah. I would love to have more people from Austin. I'm trying to keep more people in Austin. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, and really build out a solid, uh, you know, base of production here. That's the, that is the the biggest problem with working in Austin, mm-hmm. um, is that there's just not the breadth of talent um, that you have in a big production town like L.A. or New York, you know, and I think we're getting there, uh, but that's when I always, like, come out and, and meet people who are going to be looking for jobs later. Uh, if you're if you're top of your class in, you know, RTS, come see me at Rooster Teeth. If you've taken it, Richard's producing class. Yeah, come see, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're not, if you're bottom of your class, go to L.A., please. <laughs> Actually, that's a good question because we've had a lot of guests come in and have very different attitudes about Austin, L.A., whatever. I mean, what do you think about, you know, should students go out to L.A.? What do you think yeah. that they should think about when they're graduating? Well, I mean, I, I, I think no doubt there are benefits to being in a place where there are a lot of other professionals working there that you can learn from, you know? So, I mean, I think it would be um, kind of silly to say, don't go to L.A., don't go to New York, don't do those things. I do think there are some extreme advantages to being in Austin. Uh, the, the flexibility that you have, uh, the kind of bottoms-up mentality for making content uh, that's here, and um, the willingness for people to collaborate with you with kind of really no strings attached is uh, just a completely different environment here than it is in L.A., and, uh, and, and I, I would not want to give that up. I mean, I was in L.A., Bernie was in Austin. We could have chosen to go to their place. I had worked in L.A. for eight years. Like, I was very anxious to get back to Austin, mm-hmm. you know. Um, 
I know that you've started up uh, expos in uh, mm -hmm. your own conventions, right? We do, we do. Yeah. And how does that fit into the larger? Uh, well, that picture? you know, that was another dumb idea we had, where um, we thought we're going to all these conventions every year, like we go all across um, the globe, really, like attending all these different conventions, and we thought let's just have everybody come to us. Um, surely they'll do that. Um, and they did, which has been great. Uh, but then we also, for some reason, we still have to go to all the other conventions. So <laughs> we're just basically exhausted all the time. Uh, but no, we started a convention here called um, RTX. It's at the convention center. Uh, we had 40,000 people last year. Um, I, I'm hoping for like 60 this year. Um, 60,000, not just 60 people. Oh, sorry. I read that most of the people were actually coming from outside of Texas. Yeah, yeah. The vast majority, yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a great time. Uh, the, our slogan is where gaming meets the internet because that's really kind of like what Rooster Teeth is. You know, we had kind of like this uh, – we've always had like an, a, a comedy, you know, narrative kind of bent, but all of our work has really been informed by <laughs> gaming and we kind of like – I think we're like – kind of like the first generation of gaming-inspired creatives, you know, mm -hmm. where we were taking um, interactive content and turning it non-interactive. That was our, <laughs> our big thing. Are there other companies that are doing similar to what you're doing? Or it seems like you have a Copycats? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot. They need to stop. Cease and desist orders. Um, well, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a ton now. I mean, I think some people do it better than us, and I wish they'd stop. Um, no, uh, I mean, there's a lot of amazing creators out there. Um, you know, one of my personal favorites is Freddie W. Um, he does a lot of great work. He's been a great friend to us over the year and years. And, and um, um, But it's, it's fun to see, you know. I mean, it's like there's really like the whole online business and everything is like maturing now where I really feel like we're the, we're the only and the first uh, – digital network mm -hmm. you know i don't there aren't other companies that are out there that are like put out the equivalent number of original content hours yeah. as a as a t traditional tv network but do it in our style and do it differently but yeah, i don't scale think scale seems much bigger yeah but we won't be the last yeah. you know i mean they'll, they'll all be online you know so i know that you're now part of full screen which is part of Otter, is that? That's right, yeah. Okay. Uh, so how does that work? Or do you work with full screen? And maybe you can just tell our students a little bit about MCNs because they might not know. Sure. And MCN <laughs> is a multi-channel network. Uh, and that mostly refers to YouTube, um, where there are a lot of multi-channel networks. Um, but it, there's also some, some multi-channel networks on other platforms. Um, full screen is a really, really big one. And we are, we are a small one. Um, and our, our uh, multi-channel network operations at Rooster Teeth are really just focused on our owned and operated channels. Uh, so there's all things that we just do in-house, and we just split them up on the different channels because we think it's a more effective way to serve the content on those platforms. Uh, full screen, uh, uh, in comparison, uh, what they do is they empower uh, creators from kind of all over the place and that business is much more focused on uh, finding talent from anywhere and everywhere and giving them the tools to succeed on YouTube and Facebook and, and every other uh, platform where people distribute video now. So um, it's much more uh, influencer-based, 
uh, where it's much more around single individuals and uh, a, a huge uh, number of aggregate views. I think their full screen is doing over 5 billion views a month. You know, so it's like that's a lot of views. Uh, Rooster Teeth in comparison, it's much more about our programming and our shows instead of uh, individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, and we do like roughly 200 million views a month. Oh, wow. That's pretty darn impressive. Not bad. Yep. <laughs> so, how does advertising fit in here? Does it? Or brand yeah. Um It does. You know, uh, we're. We had done all those commercials for a really long time, and um, that kind of evolved. We don't really do many commercials anymore, uh, and part of the reason is that kind of evolved into what's called branded entertainment, branded integration, mm -hmm. and um, that's really the big thing, you know, with advertisers now and, and online because um, everybody knows, I mean, we all skip through ads, you know, or just ignore the ads, um, and uh, so branded integration is finding some way, it's really like a modern version of product placement, right? Where you're just finding some way to integrate a product into your video. And um, hopefully it's done in an organic way. Uh, we try to go the, do the opposite of what most companies do, which is most companies are just responding to um, incoming requests, RFPs from, from advertising agencies, where the advertising agency says, hey, we want you to put, you know, I don't know, our, uh, our, our new cat litter in your video, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and we'll have a guy eat cat litter for a funny video, but, um, but we would rather come up with the idea of, like, we should have a guy eating cat litter for a funny video and then, and then say, oh, there's any cat litter companies that would like to pay us to do that. Um, so hopefully, like, the content mm -hmm. is, is what's really the driving force behind that. So, okay, I think I'm going to, yeah, we need to open it up for the students to ask some questions, if you cool. don't mind. The Q&A session is where I normally give stuff out, so I'm just going to do that. Great. Well, we have uh, someone with a microphone somewhere. Oh, there we go, Josh. Yes. Oh, there we go. Um, if I remember correctly, you guys sent up an Indiegogo for Laser Team. And I'm, I'm kind of curious why or is it simple as we have so many fans i bet we can get them to pay for this at the same time good question um yes no uh uh well you know we had thought about doing an indiegogo here you want this uh that didn't make it very far somebody else gets it all right so we had, we had talked about doing uh, an indiegogo for a long time and um uh the reason that we wanted to do it for this project specifically was this was uh, this movie was, is kind of big, and it was one of those things where it was always going to be like the next thing that we did, and it was easy to talk ourselves out of like, you know, getting up and making it. Frankly, because it was such a a big undertaking to do, and we had so much other stuff going on, and we thought we need like a boss to like tell us go make the movie every day, and that's really what the Indiegogo uh, funders uh, turned into. So it was great that we had, you know, the financial support. Obviously, that's what got the movie made. But even better was that we had 37,000 people who had, who had said to us, you have to make this movie, go out and get it done. And we really did feel the, the support and enthusiasm of every single one of them uh, as we were making it. So actually, some in, in physical form. We had a lot, like some of the crowd scenes that in that uh, trailer, you know, out in... Um, 
that parking lot and then the football stadium and all kinds of places were filled up with people who had donated to the movie and were backers and came out to actually physically be in it. So it was, it was, uh, it was a great community experience. How much was the donation total? Is it? We, uh, so we, we hit $2.5 million, which made us the third biggest crowdfunded movie of all time. Uh, I think we got surpassed recently by Super Troopers 2. Um, just kidding, I like those guys. Uh, uh, but I'm, I am proud of the fact that it's still the only movie in the top five or whatever it's in now that is an original IP. All the other uh, movies that got more money than us are all like, you know, Veronica Mars like was a TV show or whatever, which is great, but it's like, it's cool to see people supporting original stuff. Um, uh, Laser Team was the first thing you've directed in like some time. Is there anything you did to like brush up on your filmmaking skills? I did, yes. Um, I we have another TV show, TV show. I can't believe I used that terminology. We have another series uh, that's coming out next year called Day Five. That's like an apocalyptic. Um, it, it's a really cool story. It's a it's a thing where uh, one night um, everybody who's asleep dies, and then everybody who falls asleep after that point dies. And we pick it up on day five of this crazy apocalypse where the only people who are remaining are the people who are like, kind of like outcasts of society, you know, people who work the night shift, college students, you know, people who like have been staying awake for five days. So they're kind of out of it and they're trying to figure out what has happened and how do we, um, how do we not die? How do we, how do we uh, stop this apocalypse? But I, uh, I, I, directed a pilot we made for that. We have actually haven't released it yet because the show didn't come out until next year. And then just a bunch of music videos. So, yeah, I did need to brush up. I was definitely out of practice. So for, um, uh, sorry, guys. Um, so for um, Red versus, I know, it just appeared. Um, for, for Red versus Blue, I believe you played Sarge, is that correct? That's right. You're the yep. voice acting for Sarge? Yeah. What, what was your experience with voice acting in the past, and what was that process like for people that may be interested in it? Um, my, I mean, my, my main experience with voice acting is just making silly voices for my kids, you know? <laughs> Uh, but I did get to work at Warner Brothers for quite a while and got to be around a lot of, uh, you know, voice actors and kind of see them work, which was fun, and, and they all take it, you know, very seriously, even with its fun stuff. Um, I didn't ever actually get to work with them, but one of my favorite moments at, at Warner was I was, like, signing in one day, and I looked at the name above mine, and it was Mark Hamill. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Mark Hamill's here today. And I turned, he was right next to me. <laughs> so he was doing the Joker or whatever he was doing. Um, so what were some of the uh, best decisions that either you or Bernie made from like a business standpoint um, at the start that contributed to the success of Rooster Teeth as a production company? Gosh, at the very start, I think probably the best decision was the um, sponsor uh, the sponsor layer that we added to the website. Our, by sponsor, I mean our paying subscribers um, because we have a lot of uh, those members who started then in 2003 and are still with us and still have been paying, you know, for the content um, for, you know, goodness gracious, you know, 14 years. Um, so that's been pretty, that's been pretty cool. Um, and that's been a way that was like, both self-sustaining, like made it possible for us, 
you know, in good times and bad times to have uh, kind of an operating base to work from. Uh, and also just, you know, in similar to the way that the Indiegogo backers helped us with uh, Laser Team, we always felt like there was, you know, a core group of our audience that was really devoted to what we were doing and that we had to uh, make sure that we were doing right by them. Could you go into a little bit more detail about the um, partnership you just made with ScrewAttack, which is another uh, online-based network? Is that was that partnership basically made by Osmosis because you two were previously acquired by Fullscreen? Somewhat. I mean, uh, we've known ScrewAttack for uh, a long time before they were uh, partnered with Fullscreen, also, and um, have always you know enjoyed their content, enjoyed working with them. Um, the good thing right now, like we we kind of have been getting together over the last year and just kind of like trying to sort things out, and they have so many uh, cool things that they're doing and so much opportunity for growth, but uh, limited resources, kind of the same way that we were, you know, like four or five years ago, and a lot of those things like we already have, you know, like we've already figured it out. Um, their their convention, we just announced that when we do RTX, our convention um, next year, July first through third. Um, their convention that they've been running in Dallas is going to be a part of that, which for them is just like a huge relief because we've got an entire events team and people to coordinate and run all that stuff and do all the, the programming and the sponsorship. And they, they really don't. They just had their, their kind of on-camera talent. So hopefully we can be able to provide more stuff like that for them. Were you always interested in doing visual effects stuff or um, did you really know what you wanted to do when you got into the RTF department? Um, I, I hadn't really thought a lot about visual effects when I was in RTF. I, are there, there's a visual effects class I assume now, right? Are there? Um, I mean, there weren't back then, you know, cause it wasn't, a, it wasn't really a thing yet, you know? Um, but I had done a lot of visual effects with my partner Bernie on the, the film that we made together and, uh, the job that opened up for, uh, for, for Robert Rodriguez was a visual effects job. And I was like, I know how to do that. Done this, you know, I've done this already on my own. And so just kind of went in and sold myself based around that. And then that, I didn't realize that that was going to lead to a big visual effects career, but I always really liked visual effects and always really liked animation and the process because it's like, it's very creative, but it's also, um, you know, very structured. And um, like, putting every single like little piece together and like polishing them is, is a lot of fun. After working for Rooster Teeth or being the head of Rooster Teeth or in it <laughs> yeah. for about, uh, how is it, 13 years now? 13, 14? Yeah. Well, what would be the most enjoyable part of your job or an enjoyable experience throughout Rooster Teeth? Like if I had to name just one? Yeah. Um, well, that's tough. Being at this class, obviously. <laughs> uh, motivating young people. Um, uh, I think probably, um, I mean, the thing I like the most day by day is just um, uh, working with other creative people and collaborating with them. You know, I think that's the most rewarding. Um, you know, like, you know, I, I've always liked things where, like, you know, uh, the creativity came out in a way that was more than the sum of its parts. And um, that's what we get to do every day, which is great, you know. Um, like one single experience, my favorite experience, uh, if I had to name one, was probably uh, at the first RTX, our first convention. Um, we just came out 
uh, to a room of like the first one was only like five or six hundred people, you know, compared to 40, 60,000 now. Um, but we just came out to that room and we didn't know what to expect. And it was just kind of like a wall of like excitement and enthusiasm. Um, and and uh, that was that was great. Given all your experience in content creation over the past uh, few years, if you were to come up with a list of um, do's and don'ts for content creators, um, mm. what would those be? Ooh, do's and don'ts for content creators. Do you mean just in terms of like making the actual content itself or like the field, like picking a field or the actual creation of it? Uh, uh, pre-production, spend more time in pre-production. Um, that is the hardest thing to force yourself to do. Uh, the more prepared you are, the better. The more prepared you are, the cheaper it is. Um, I'll give you an example from, from Laser Team. Uh, you see the guy with the helmet on? So uh, he's only wearing the helmet like half the time, you know? And the other half is digital. And that was because we, uh, we had such a compressed pre-production window that we couldn't make a helmet that worked well in all weather conditions. So there was a lot of times where he like he couldn't have it on. Like he might, he might have just the visor off or like the sound didn't work or something else. So we had to take the entire helmet off and he just had like the black dots on his face, you know. Um, and that cost a lot of money, you know, stuff like that. And something that if we'd had more time in pre-production, we could have built like a fan system or done something else that would have made it. So that's a, like a concrete example. But I think across the board, spending more time in uh, pre-production, you have to have like a deadline and make sure like you're ready to go and you can't like just sit around forever and noodle with your script you know uh for the rest of your life but um you gotta allot uh enough time to really make sure you have crossed all your t's and dotted all your i's how long was your time for pre-production and then production on laser time uh <laughs> pre yeah, uh laser tag uh i know you can see um, where i'm thinking of. yeah no i'm too lazy to go all the way back there but you can come have something later um, uh, our pre-production, I want to say, was three months, and like true pre-production, that's yeah, it was about three months. Um, you, you know, we had the benefit of um, we had the benefit of uh, you know, like writing and working like within an, our own studio. So we had done a few little things like along the way, some like concept art and things like that, as we were in the just in the writing phase. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the actual like dedicated pre-production time was about three months, and then when we shot, uh, it was officially forty days. You know, is how you um, you know talk about the schedule. But it was actually uh, about thirty of those were nights, and it was bitterly cold that that winter. And we it was mostly shot in like Bass Drop and Manor, mm. and man, windy and just horrible. I mean, it was like. It was it was below freezing almost every single night, and we even did pickups in March of this year for a few things we had missed. And I don't know if you guys remember, there was a, like a, a cold front that came in, yeah. and it was freezing again. It was 25 degrees in March in Austin. <laughs> it's like, what is going on? That's not the deal. No. Um, one more question. Um, so being in the business of online network and online content how important do you think it is to engage your audience and um how often do you do it personally or how do y'all go about engaging your audience i think it's extremely important 
you know, and now more so than ever, um, we, you know, created our website uh, so that we would have a, a really direct access to the audience. Um, and that's online, but then we also do a lot of things in, you know, in real life, uh, in physical space, you know, going to conventions or going to meetups. Um, you know, I just came back from Toronto. We showed the film up there. And, um, you know, the, going to the movie is, is great, but I think what the, the audience really appreciates is, you know, like after that we went out and spent like a couple hours just having drinks. You know, so it's not always possible to do those things, but I think when when you can, I think it's a good thing. You learn a lot. You know, you learn a lot from from the audience that you don't always pick up online. Can you talk briefly about work-life balance? You know, like how do you stay recharged and you know you have kids? Yeah. Uh, it's the hardest thing, for sure. That's definitely the hardest thing. Uh, I, I admit I'm not very good at it. Um, I, I made my wife come to this thing so that I could see her for once. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of hours. I mean, I think that's something that everybody who works in this field struggles with because it is really intense. You know, like the first jobs I had, you know, in L.A., um, I slept on the floor, you know, like just like during crunch time. And, like, I, you know, there's there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of that kind of like mentality. It's kind of like hard to break at times. We have a lot of vacation time at Rooster Teeth. We have um, uh, four weeks. We give everybody four weeks of vacation time a year um, and all their holidays, you know, off and everything. And uh, we try to do that so that people will be encouraged to use it and go and recharge and, and refresh. Honestly, a lot of people don't take it. You know, it's actually it's hard to get people. Sometimes you have to force them to go take <laughs> vacations. Um, so yeah, I don't know. You know, honestly, I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, it's, if you guys are going in, into production, it's something you really need to think about, and you'll be confronted with it. I'm sure in your first, you know, big jobs if you haven't been already, where it's like, you know, like a very typical day is 16 hours. That's very typical. It just kind of it is what it is in this field. Well, uh, on that happy note, no. Yeah. I, <laughs> I actually will ask you the question we ask all our guests for the last question, which yeah. is, what are you watching that isn't Rooster Teeth content uh, these days? Gosh, I don't know. I, I watch so much stuff that's random, just like people sending me, you know, watch this. I guess the most stuff I'm, like, dedicated to, I'm watching a lot of HBO recently, um, uh, Silicon Valley and uh, Game of Thrones and... Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have much time to watch. So. Yeah, I figure with all your producing and doing, hard to hard to balance that. Yeah. Speaking of work-life balance, right? Yeah. What are you guys watching? Breaking Bad. Breaking, Breaking Bad. Yeah, what? <laughs> Look at that. They've all been primed. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> well, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Media Industry Conversations. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, visit our site, rtf.utexas.edu. This course was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary, with lead TA Tim Piper, and the program was produced and edited by the technical TA, that's me, Kyle Rather. We hope you join us next time for another Media Industry Conversation. Get along, little dopey, get along.